Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hello and welcome to Sports Weekly. I'm your host Ayaz Memon. In this week's edition, we've got two stories which are in a in a way controversial. One is to do in, in in the world of cricket, the other in the world of tennis. In cricket, we've had Ollie Robinson, a debutant player for England, and their outstanding player in the first match against uh, New Zealand has been suspended from all international matches for tweets he had put out eight or nine years back. The England Cricket Board has come down very heavily on him. So, what are the ramifications of this? Uh, does it mean the end of Robinson's career, or does it mean that this is a wrap on the knuckles and he can come back? Remember, there's a five-test series coming up against India, so we're going to talk about that. And then, of course, there's Roger Federer. You don't normally associate controversy with Roger Federer, but he's pulled out of the French Open, having won a match. He had won his first three-round matches, and then he's pulled out of the tournament on the back of a victory. Actually, he announced that at the end of the uh, third match when he won, and you know, in the press conference, he said he might pull out of the tournament because he'll have to see how his knees feel when he wakes up the next morning, etc. So, how does that sit with the tennis authorities? Is that something that players are allowed to do? And if Roger Federer can do it, does it mean that the others could take similar liberty? We're going to discuss that too. And then, of course, we've got more on in the world of tennis on the French Open, cricket, England versus New Zealand, the first test. Football, the Euro Cup starts this weekend. So we've got a, a lot of uh, discussions happening there. And then F1, the Azerbaijan GP, what a crazy race it was. And we've got, of course, uh, Samuel Arora to discuss that with us. Also the football, also the tennis and also the cricket. We've got a lot of discussion going on. So let me, without much ado, bring in my co-panelists, Mr. Fantastic and Samil Arora. Hi, guys. How are you all doing? Hi, Ayaz. Thanks so much for having us again on the show. Pleasure as always. And yes, there is a lot happening in the world of sport, isn't it? Glad to be here. Hey, Samil. Hey, guys. Such a pleasure to be here back again at the start of another week. It's such a fun thing, right? I look forward to this one to discuss the major stories of the world of sport. And this week, we are loaded. Absolutely. So, while we're loaded, let's get started with the Ollie Robinson point, Ayaz, like you mentioned. It's interesting, uh, and we've seen this happen more and more over the last few months, where older points of views that have been expressed are coming back to haunt people. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think Ollie Robinson can and should come back if he could? Well, you should come back. I mean, you know, you get punished for what you've done. And after you've served out your punishment, it's not a ban for life. He's been suspended from international cricket right now. But he should be back, I think, in the series against England. Remember, he won't be available for the second test. So he's to go back to county cricket. And uh, the England cricket board will take a call because uh, they have a zero-tolerance policy towards racism and sexism. Now, those are the two issues on which Ollie Robinson was found guilty of having tweeted stuff eight, nine years back. And to be fair to Ollie Robinson, as soon as this became public, which is just immediately after he made his debut, uh, he went public and said, you know, I apologize for what I've done. I was 18 or 19 then. I'm much wiser now. But having said that, now that it's come out in the open, I think the England Cricket Board has to take some action. And this is what they've done. Pending investigation, he has been suspended from international cricket. We'll have to wait and see how long this suspension will last. Does it mean more than just the one test? Fortunately for Robinson, England's next test starts only in August against India. So conceivably, he could still be recalled 
But of course, he's going to have challengers in Ben Stokes, Jofra Archer. Those guys are going to come back in the series. So it's a little unfortunate because he picked up seven wickets in the first test against New Zealand. Looked pretty much England's best player despite a century from Rory Burns. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's finding himself out on the backside. Well, it's a good message to send and hopefully it's a strong message that deters any such future discrepancies from other players. Uh, Speaking of the match though, I think it was quite a dull match. What do you think? Well, it had its moments. I think, you know, losing an entire day because of rain obviously affected the result. We could have conceivably had a result in this match if there had been no rain. I thought that the debutants performed very well. There was Devon Conway who got a double hundred for New Zealand. And he's only the seventh batsman to have got a double hundred in test history. And that's going back a long way. But what's interesting is that two double hundreds made by debutants have come this year itself. There was Kyle Mayers from the West Indies who scored a double hundred in a fantastic run chase against Bangladesh. I think it was in February. And now we've got Devin Conway. So this is intriguing because two in the same year, debutants making a double hundred. Is something happening? Is there a trend that can be mapped? Is that that batsman bats have become better? batsmen more adventurous or what? I think it's a bit of, you know, all of these, also a little bit of luck. But I must also mention here that the track record of those who made double hundreds on debut test cricketers isn't very impressive post that achievement. So, and for different reasons, not just for the fact that they've made a double hundred and then they fizzled out. There are some players like that, like R.S. Foster, who made... 287 on debut and that's going back a long way, 1903. Remains the highest score by a debutant. But he died at the age of 36. Rather young. Not many test matches were played in those days. 100 against Australia. But he made maybe 500 odd runs of which 287 came in one innings. Then there's, to my mind, the most interesting as well as a sad story is of Lawrence Rowe who made uh, 214 on debut. West Indian player. And he was tipped as the next big thing after... Garfield Sobers and Rohan Kanai in the batting lineup as a successor to them as a batsman. But having made a double hundred on debut and subsequently also a triple hundred, his career ended with 30 matches because he developed an eye infection. And, you know, his reflexes kind of slowed down. He couldn't spot the ball properly. And guess who replaced him in the West Indies team and went on to become the biggest player since Sobers and Kanai? It was Viv Richards. So... Lawrence Rowe's misfortune became the good fortune for Viv Richards. Viv Richards came to India in 1974. Lawrence Rowe was then undergoing treatment for his eye. He came back to the West Indies team, went to Australia, made some runs, not enough, and then finally got lost to international cricket. So that was kind of a sad story. Then there have been guys like Matthew Sinclair and Brendan Kurupu, all of whom started with double hundreds. Jacques Rudolph of South Africa, Brendan Kurupu of Sri Lanka, Matthew Sinclair of New Zealand. All started with double hundreds, but really didn't achieve much. They finished with middling careers, you know, averages of about 30, 35, 37, which is not great when you consider somebody who makes a double hundred on debut. So what happens? There is obviously the pressure of expectation, you know, and that can weigh down on on players unless you're really mentally tough. The other is, and especially true in today's world is, that the minute you make, forget about a double hundred, you start off with a hundred, sparkling hundred, Rival coaches, captains, bowlers are already seeing what you've done on videos and mapping out and planning out ways to dismiss you. So it means that somebody who starts with a double hundred has to work doubly hard to keep honing his skills and performing better and better. Otherwise, the bowlers and captains and rivals get the better of you. 
Absolutely. I think that just also puts light on how important or how hard some of the successful players have worked at their game to stay a step ahead and to counter all of these strategic initiatives by the opposition. So that's a great story there. What do you think uh, about New Zealand's preparation now for the World Test Championship final? I think they're set. They're looking like a very strong unit, aren't they? They are looking like a very strong unit, Mr. Fantastic. And remember, they were without Trent Bolt, who was one of their premier bowlers. I mean, Bolt and Southie bowling together. But now their hardship is, who do they keep out? Because Kylie Jamieson bowled very well in in the first test. Uh, Neil Wagner is, is one of those who's been a match-winning bowler, especially in conditions where the ball swings and seams. And then they would, I would imagine, they would certainly need to keep one spinner in the team, which is Mitchell Santner. This is something that England missed out on in the first test. They didn't have a specialist spinner. And therefore, no, nobody would challenge Devin Conway after the Pacers had done their bit and tried their bit and couldn't get beyond the point. So, I think New Zealand looking very good. Of course, the need runs from Kane Williamson. And remember, they're looking very good even going for the World Test Championship final, not just the, the second test against England. The World Test Championship final is against India, starts on June 18th. And they are getting two massive competitive matches as practice, two test matches. While India are still in quarantine, they've been allowed to now kind of have, have nets. They will have match practice, but it'll be kind of within themselves, which is not the same thing. I know that in today's day and age, you can follow what the other team is doing. You can map their progress, etc. But to get your feet moving, your hands working, your mind ticking, for you to get into rhythm, competitive rhythm, you have to play competitive matches. And that's something that India are not going to get. So I think that India really need to be looking at performing a notch higher. Otherwise, uh, New Zealand could unsettle them. Absolutely. And I think this is exactly what even Yuvraj Singh recently said when he said that India's preparation will possibly uh, be incomplete. And the fact that New Zealand is already there playing competitive matches, they'll just be ready. For them, it'll be another match. Probably a neutral venue, but I would say home advantage with the New Zealanders. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, the conditions can get very similar to New Zealand. And New Zealand and New Zealand has been a formidable team. They don't have a great record in England so far. But, you know, I think India has been the most consistent team across formats in the last three or four years, whether it's Tests or ODIs or T20s. But New Zealand is the most improved. Much like India, they're number one in ODIs, they're number two in Tests, and they're number two in T20 or three in T20. So, you know, they've been there and thereabouts. It's not an easy team to beat. The last time India and New Zealand played was in New Zealand 2019-20, that season. Played two Test matches and we got whipped in both matches. So, there's a bit of a psychological advantage that New Zealand have that the last two test matches that they played against India, they won both. Well, let's hope the test match really does turn out to be an exciting one. And maybe there is a case to be made for the finals being a three-match series rather than a one-off final. Moving on to the world of tennis, Roger Federer has pulled out of the French Open and many are saying that this is probably his indication that Time is up and we may just have seen the last of Federer, especially at the French Open. And could his upcoming Wimbledon appearance be his his final goodbye, as it were? And it's not an injury that has forced him out. It's more the after effects of a surgery. But, well, when, when you've had a career that's been 20 years plus at this level, eventually the body is bound to break down. 
Uh, what do you think, Ayaz? Is this safe for Federer? Are we seeing the last few weeks of Roger Federer on the tour? I'm a, I'm a little wary of saying that because people have been saying this for the last five, six years and he's kept coming back and sometimes come back very strongly. But look, he'll be 40 in a couple of months or a few months from now. And uh, it's an age which can be cruel on an athlete, especially somebody who's just coming back from knee surgeries and stuff. But the point is, why was this issue become a little newsworthy, if not controversial, is that generally in tennis tournaments, whether it's Grand Slams or even the ATP circuit, it's not that a player pulling out is frowned upon, but it's also kind of penalized. You can't do it. It's not acceptable. But there are exceptions. I mean, if you have been through surgery like Roger Federer has been, then there is a consideration that you might have, if not a breakdown, you might have a problem that might not allow you to continue. If you get injured and you pull out, you're obviously allowed to do that. And I think, look, in, in the case of Federer, so he's not had an injury, but he's had soreness in his knees. He's not feeling up to it. And he's saving himself for Wimbledon. That's very, very clear. So I think, look, you can't challenge Federer's intent. But what is clear is that he was using the French Open as a build-up to test his knees, to test his form, to test his rhythm, to build up towards, I think, what he considers is his big challenge, which is Wimbledon. Now, whether that's going to be his swan song or not, it could well be. I think the way he has withdrawn from the French Open, it seems he wants to save everything for Wimbledon. Yeah, but I just don't think it's fair for players to make it to the third round and then withdraw. I mean, you've probably robbed someone of a spot in the tournament. and Yes, that's well, the controversial part. But, you know, it enters into a bit of a grey area because he's just recovered from... He's not been playing before this. He's had his uh, surgeries. He's coming back. And, you know, he could have feigned an injury. You know, if you don't want to play, you can say my hamstring is gone. It's the easiest thing that every sportsman does. Because no, there's no way to know whether your hamstring is okay or not. So, I think he, Federer has been very candid. And uh, he's not beyond the point let down. Because I think he had a four-setter in the third round, which he won. And playing in the, at the French Open takes... You know, there's a lot of time which is used up. So, you're on court much longer. It's not a serve and volley surface, as we know. So, I think he's understood for himself. And who understands his own body better than Roger Federer? I think that's the call he's made. And everybody has kind of agreed with that. Well, we were looking forward to seeing him play against uh, Berrettini, one of the rising stars of the game. Uh, maybe we'll never get to see that again. So, does this mean that the path is clear now for Nadal to add yet another French Open? I mean, he's got this incredible record at the French Open. He's played 104 matches through his career and lost only twice. That's an unbelievable statistic. And through this, there's about a dozen French Open titles as well. The only man standing in his way, if you ask me, is Novak Djokovic. And they're on collision course for a semi-final. That's true. I think actually, if there's one guy who would have been really hoping that Federer wouldn't withdraw, would have been Nadal. Because uh, Djokovic would have met Federer earlier, you know, in, a, in an earlier round. The way the draw was uh, that Djokovic would have had to play Federer had Federer won his next round. And then if Nadal plays Federer on clay, he's far more confident and the past record shows that he's generally always gets the better of Federer on clay whenever it's happened. But against Dokovic, it becomes a tough call. It's a mind-boggling record that he's got on clay, Nadal. But uh, Dokovic, you know, I don't think there's anybody hungrier today in, in international tennis, not just men's but just the sport. There's nobody hungrier than Dokovic because he wants to get ahead of Nadal and Federer as the all-time great. That's his burning ambition as we know. Yeah, and he's okay to not be the nice guy about it either. 
that is very <laughs> true yeah <laughs> well on the women's side as well another great who's probably reached the end of the road serena williams also lost early on again and while we had ash party withdraw most people were thinking that maybe this is serena's time to hit grand slam number 24 but she's lost and another end of the road sign ayas yeah i mean look uh, serena is i think a year older than roger federer so you know it's obviously age is taking its toll even on her but you know she's going on she's going on playing that's a great sight and ash party unfortunately uh, has had to withdraw also so this is a strange french open tournament that we've seen haven't we you know naomi osaka pulling out federer withdrawing then party withdrawing then some other player who fell down during attending a press conference injured herself and had to yeah. pull out you know so it's been one of those quirky quirky grand slam tournaments it lives up to the strange times we're living in it's like a perfect reflection <laughs> of everything in the real world absolutely absolutely yeah but then you know look we'll have a new champion well let's hope that the quarter final semis and the finals shape up toward there and we'll definitely have a chat about that next week moving on to football The Euros start this weekend, and I can't wait. Uh, Somil, what do you think? I, there's a grudge match this Sunday, England Croatia, and I can't wait for that because Croatia, cruelly, well, cruelly for England and England fans, kicked England out of the 2018 World Cup, and this is payback time, I think. I think it very well could be. Croatia don't quite seem to be the same squad that they were in 2018. I mean, of course they're not. The players are going to be different, but. I don't think they've got that same X factor that they did the last time out. And England, they've got a younger squad. Of course, they've got Harry Kane in there as well. They just seem to be more rejuvenated of sorts. And again, England could do an England. They could be knocked out in the round of 16. But at least in this fight, I think England is going to be the one getting the one up over Croatia this time out. But if there's one team that you can never count out, it has to be Croatia, right? They may not have the best quality overall, but just how gritty they are on the field can get them some big results. as we saw how many years was it ago 3 years but it feels like a lifetime now absolutely and while there are a few other great matches uh, coming up this is the marquee match i think that everyone's kind of looking forward to for the weekend halfway across the world the copa america also starts off and there's a couple of good matches over the weekend there as well brazil taking on venezuela and argentina taking on chile while the tournament is still moving between countries these are the drawn matches so we don't know if they happen where they happen and well hopefully they happen this weekend yeah yeah exactly argentina versus chile is going to be an especially interesting one so which way does this go they've been clashing together for many many years now and chile remember defeated argentina to win the copa america as well a few years ago so there's always that hot blood between both these national teams and for us on the broadcast side copa america may not seem like the most viewer friendly stuff when you compare that all the biggest superstars in the world end up playing in the euros but For the people in South America, football is a religion. It's something that they take up as a culture of sorts, as a lifestyle. And for them, there is nothing bigger, apart from the World Cup, that is, to the Copa America. So the passion is right there. The fans may not be in the building, but you certainly know that they'll be cheering hard from their homes. And this one will excite so much passion. It's going to be such a fun one to watch. The players can certainly feel the pressure while they're playing. and i hope they don't crumble under that because if they do we might not see the best football in the world but knowing argentina knowing chile they'll be going out there and they'll be having a tough fight between themselves yeah and there's some really big names on display as well so hope you guys can follow that uh moving on to formula 1 the azerbaijan gp that happened on sunday was a crazy race to put it mildly 
right? <laughs> yeah. Ah, so where do we begin? Is the question I always end up asking. Let's start I'm with so qualifying. Glad. Let's let's start with qualifying, Samuel, because let's start I think with qualifying. That's yes. where that's where the race really got set up to a large mm-hmm. extent. Yes, but no. Because it gave us an indication of the pandemonium that was going to happen, but it didn't tell us exactly what the result would be. So glad for that. Charles Leclerc of Ferrari got vengeance of sorts from Monaco, ended up taking pole position, but was it on his own merit? I mean, he said that it wasn't the fastest lap in the world, but he got a mega, mega toe from Lewis Hamilton and his Mercedes. And if you're wondering, well, that's the best car to get a slipstream from, isn't it? It's the fastest one around here. You might be mistaken because Mercedes all weekend long, they were struggling. Bottas, his teammate Hamilton's, ended up qualifying and the lower half of the top 10 ended up finishing way, way back. I think B13 or somewhere, but that's something for later on. Eventually, Leclerc got pole position. It was Hamilton in second place, Verstappen on third. All this drama that happened. But eventually, you know how Charles Leclerc lost the lead? A branch. I know, I know, it sounds absurd, right? But there was actually a branch from a tree that fell down on the track, which cost Leclerc the entry towards a certain corner, which was a very critical corner because it led to a very, very long straight where Lewis Hamilton was able to catch him up and pass him. So I'm not sure if that was what cost him the win. I mean, it was inevitable, right? Ferrari was going to be passed by the Mercedes somewhere. It was just the catalyst, the branch that is. But after that, it was all that just sounds like a bad pot boiler. Exactly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so crazy, right, to imagine. It's just mind So is there, is, there, is there a right to appeal in such a situation? <laughs> no, uh, there's not. I mean, you just have to deal with it. In fact, there's another more interesting thing, rather very unsafe one as well, that is even more bizarre than this one, that teams have no right to appeal against. And that is bursting tyres. So I'll lay down the context into this one. Hamilton got passed by both Verstappen and Sergio Perez in the pit stops. They were able to execute a better strategy, both the Red Bull guys, and they were one and two. And at that stage, it seemed like, yeah, oh yeah, race is done. Let's let's pack up and go home. But then suddenly, and now this is the crazy part, at over 190 miles per hour, which is easily over 300 kilometers per hour, Aston Martin's Lance Stroll was driving on the straight and then poof, something happened. He slams right there into the left-hand side wall and crashes out of the race. Why? What happened? Was it snipers? Okay, maybe we'll find out in a few minutes. The race gets red flagged. Everyone goes back to the pit lane. Things have been calm. Things have been stopped. We come back on. Max Verstappen is leading. He's doing a nice and easy job as he has been doing the whole weekend. And then all of a sudden, bang, he goes out again. 300 kilometers per hour. That's the speed of the crash happening at that same front stretch. And guess what? It was also the left rear tire for Max as well. So many people were wondering, what is it going on here? I mean, is there some sort of a bump in the Baku circuit that's grabbing people in? Is there some sort of sniper? Is there some time bomb attached to the left rear tires? No, there wasn't. Apparently, it was debris. But many people have said this before. The tire company Pirelli might always go back and say, okay, debris on the track caused that. But could be something else, which is the real talking point right now, because the tyres were supposed to last at least seven more laps than the crashes that happened. Stroll crashed on, crashed on lap 30, Verstappen on lap 32, so they were easily supposed to go seven, eight more laps, but they did not. So there's this big ray of confusion. But if you think that's the end, that's not, because Lewis Hamilton could have won the race from Sergio Perez at the restart from Verstappen's crash. But he flicked a magic switch. And the magic switch is basically the switch that allows Hamilton to control the brake bias of the car. More technical stuff, that is. But basically, the brakes did not respond in the way he wanted to. First lap on the restart, 
Hamilton just did a see you again meme. He went straight on while the entire field went left and he dropped down from B2 to P15. <laughs> well, yes, that is a very, that's a very like bad a cla- point boiler. No, no, but not point boiler. You know, it sounds like a classic whodunit. You know, you have to get <laughs> so many dimensions. I mean, you, I mean, it's bizarre. What the hell is happening? I think exactly. it's a perfect case for the Pink Panther. <laughs> could be, could be. And that's what I said on the Inside Line F1 podcast. The Baku City police are saying that smoking is injurious to health because Hamilton's brakes were smoking hot on the grid. It was like you could see it from afar that he's not going to make the corner. And the second is, I mean, they're hunting for snipers on the after- Neftchila Avenue, that is, if I pronounce it correctly. So yeah, watch out for them. They've been doing some nefarious stuff. <laughs> so this has done a couple of things, I think, for the Drivers' Championship. One, it has not changed anything on the top because Verstappen, had he won, he would have taken a much larger lead over Hamilton. I think as things stand, because Hamilton himself didn't score, the three-point lead that Verstappen has stays. But because of his win, Perez has moved up the ranks. And on the constructors' side, I think the Red Bull team are doing better than Mercedes now. That's absolutely correct. So I'll tackle the second point first because it's going to be more important. Valtteri Bottas is Mercedes' second driver. I mean, the whole weekend has been terrible for him. He ended up getting to Baku five hours late because his flight in Finland got cancelled or something like that. So he was already having a tough start to the weekend, then was super, super slow. Apparently, it was a different setup direction taken by Mercedes. But still, you could see the difference between a Bottas and a Hamilton throughout the weekend. But it wasn't Bottas who ended up finishing ahead. It was Bottas who ended up finishing ahead, I mean to say, because Hamilton, after his mistake, ended up in 15th. Bottas was somewhere around 12, 13, there or thereabouts, but insignificant is the position. And so, many must be wondering, well, Bottas is finally costing us points, right? That's what the feeling in the Mercedes office might be. Because at last, Mercedes have lost a Constructors' Championship lead for the first time since Hockenheim in 2018, which was again in a similar time, in the months of June and July. So... This is a bit huge for Mercedes right now. They're finally seeing their second driver cost them points and eventually cost them money and cost them prestige in the championship. So there's a bit of a conundrum going on right there. What do they do? Do they replace Valtteri Bottas midway through the season, end of the year with George Russell? One can only wonder which way this is going to go. But yes, in the championship for the drivers, I would say nothing ventured, nothing gained this weekend. It's all totally okay. But there's this bitter feeling that you can expect Hamilton and Verstappen both to have, saying that this could have been me, this could have been my golden chance, right? Had I not made that mistake for Hamilton and had the tyre not blown up for Verstappen, who knows how much of a gap they must have had right there. Mm. Absolutely. Well, that just also makes sure that there's more and more excitement happening in the world of Formula 1 for the upcoming races. Well, it was a pleasure being on the show as always, and we're looking forward to a lot of sporting action Thanks again for inviting us, Ayaz. Hope to catch up with you again soon. My pleasure, Mr. Fantastic and Somil. As always, you guys have been absolutely fantastic, Mr. Fantastic, in uh, keeping us abreast of uh, what's happening in the world of football, tennis, F1, of course, cricket, which is my passion. But remember, next week, we're going to have a loaded show again. The French Open reaches culmination. So we'll talk about who wins the title, what else is happening there. There's the second test match, England versus New Zealand. Football, Euro Cup starts and that's going to be a lot of action there. And I think a lot of interest and lots more for Mr. Fantastic and Somil to talk about. So till next week, see you. And we'll catch up at the same time with, as I said, loads of action to keep you updated. <laughs>